You know, kids ask a lot of questions, don't they? Researchers uh, indicate that uh, a mom answers more questions any given hour than a doctor or a teacher. And further research indicates that the most curious age of all are four-year-old girls <laughs> who, who ask upwards to 390 questions a day, which averages out to be about a question every two minutes. And you mothers wonder why you feel so tired. What's the craziest question your kids have ever asked you? Did you ever write those questions down? I had to laugh when I read about this one. A question asked to parents, what did it feel like on your last day of being a child? <laughs> is there a last day? I, I don't think so. In a sense, there is a child that continues inside of all of us. And that child, even children of God, we keep on asking questions, don't we? Until we get home to heaven, we have lots of questions. And you know, the Bible tells us that God also asks questions of us, though for reasons different than our own. Today's parable is built around the power of a question. In fact, that's what I've entitled this message, The Power of a Question. Our text, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'll put the words on the screen for you. I'm going to read this aloud, and I want you to listen for the questions. Are you ready? Here we go. What do you think? Jesus asked right out of the chute. A man had two sons. He tells a story, a parable. And he went to the first son, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and did the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Question number two. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, and the them here is referring to Jewish leaders who largely rejected Jesus. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Ouch, that, that had to hurt. For John, he's speaking of John the Baptist here, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you leaders saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Two takeaways jump out at me upon the reading of this parable, and I want you to take note of them. As you listen today, I want you to apply them to yourselves, okay? Here they are. Be honest with yourself, and in doing right, do it now. You know, we preachers, we pastors, my task today is to somehow communicate truth and get it through to you, and in such a way that it becomes transferable and portable. We, uh, frankly, do not want you to merely hear it and forget it, what you've heard, but we want you to leave this place carrying the truth with you. So I believe takeaway messages like these two are crucial. I would call them like batons in a race where you're handing off to another runner. 
I want to cement these two concepts in your mind today, and I want you to take them home with you. This message must move beyond this moment. So if you'll indulge me, just to cement them, I want you to say them out loud with me. Would you do that? Be honest with yourself, and in doing right, do it now. James 4, 17, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Years ago, a giant billboard over a Houston freeway asked essentially the same question that this parable is asking, and here's what the billboard read. Whatever happened to personal responsibility? That's a question our entitlement society would do well to consider. Yes, the Bible teaches divine sovereignty, but it also teaches human or personal responsibility. Every person here is responsible for their own decisions. Even if you like you've been victimized in life, you're still responsible for your own decisions. Every person here this morning is pictured by either the first son or the second son. So my question for you, which son pictures you? The first hesitated but then followed through. The second promised but then failed to follow through. And so Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And the answer was obvious even to the hard-hearted Jewish leaders. Now, just so you understand what this story is talking about, let me unfold it. The father in this storyline is a picture of God, the vineyard, a picture of the work of God as accessed by Messiah, Jesus. And the two sons were two classes of men to whom the command to labor was given. You got that? You got to understand that principle here. The first son represented the sinful class, i.e., in that society, tax collectors, prostitutes, who initially surrendered their integrity, but then later repented and followed Jesus. And in the progress of Revelation, in the unfolding narrative of the gospel, they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And they believed he took their place on the cross in paying for their sins. And they embraced by faith the gospel truth that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Now get this, and they demonstrated the reality of their faith by their actions. That's key to understanding this passage. Faith without works is dead, James tells us. In fact, John Calvin is well known for his quote, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's accompanied by works. The second son represented the religious elite of the Jewish world. We're talking about Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, elders, people who were part of the Sanhedrin, that group of 71 men who had oversight of the religious world of ancient Israel. They initially professed to follow God, but they rejected John's call to repentance, and they rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. John the Baptist is referenced here in our text. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He announced his coming. He called people to repentance. Remember Matthew chapter 3? What was his message when he came on in his rough clothing, eating strange foods? He cried out to the religious crowd, Repent! The kingdom of heaven's at hand! I.e., Jesus, the king, is here. Get your hearts ready. Turn from your sin and embrace him. Now, there's a sense in which 
All of us who stand behind this sacred desk are disciples of John the Baptist. We try to imitate him. We have to replicate what he did. So here's my objective today. I'm going to call you to look at your life I'm going to call you to realize your desperate need, and I'm going to call you to repent and turn by faith to Jesus as Savior and Lord. But there's a key to understanding what God is saying to us in this passage, and I don't want you to miss this. Here's the key, what Jesus was saying. Don't assume anything. The religious crowd assumed they were good to go, that they were good with God. They assumed it, but to assume is to err. Here's the application for us. Don't assume that because you grew up in church. Don't assume because you come regularly. Don't assume because you have some facts in your head. Don't assume because you've prayed a prayer. Don't assume because, quote, you've asked Jesus into your heart verbally as a kid that you are good to go no matter how you live. Hmm. Consider what I tell addicts in my counseling office. Pay more attention to what you do than to what you say. Because words are cheap. And that's what Jesus was saying by way of insightful questions. Asking questions was Jesus' preferred method of teaching in the Gospels. He would in his evangelism, in his teaching, ask questions, and he would answer questions with questions, which ironically was a common rabbinical teaching method in the day. In fact, earlier in Matthew 21, when the chief priests and elders posed a question for Jesus, he responded. You'll see it on the, on the uh, slide here, verse 24. I'll, I'll ask you a question, and he did. And then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. He answered questions with questions. Was Jesus being coy? No, he was simply trying to get his listeners to think. And that's what I want to do with you today. So let's dive into this text. And I want to share with you three insights about the power of a God question. Here we go. Number one, the purpose of a God question is not to obtain information for God but rather to direct conversation between God and us. I'm a go-between today, okay? I'm gonna give you some God questions, but he's gonna be conversing with you through his word. Hmm. By the way, God doesn't lack information. I mean, God's omniscient. There's nothing he doesn't know. But he wants us to own up to what we know about what he says. And so the goal here is reflection. We've got to get people to think. I'm going to communicate mind to mind, spirit to spirit. And the first question, God question in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned by partaking of the forbidden fruit. What did they do when they sinned? Well, they felt guilty. They saw that they were naked, physically emotionally, spiritually, and they went and they hid themselves in the trees of the garden, trying to, <laughs> thinking they could somehow hide from God, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Do, do we do that today? Is anybody here hiding out from God? You, you could be sitting here and you're still hiding from God. We hide out from God by our busy schedules, our activities, 
where we try to keep ourselves from thinking about what's bothering us, our conscience pricking us. We're pushing away from God, and we don't want to think about where we stand with him. God came to these two in the cool of the day. Perhaps the Hebrew rendering is better. He came to them in the wind. Apparently the voice of the Spirit came in the wind, kind of a John 3, 8 sort of a thing. In fact, some render it a stormy wind, and the voice came, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? God knew where they were. The question was, did they? Do you know he's asking that same question of every person in this room right now as his spirit begins to move in this auditorium? He's asking you, and I want you to answer it, where are you? Where are you spiritually? He's asking, where are you in relationship with me? Be honest with yourself. And in doing right, do it now. This message today is not just for unbelievers. The late James Montgomery Boyce called this parable the first parable of the Christian life because the sons were asked to serve in the vineyard and they were asked to go to work today. Now get this, obedience is doing what God asks you to do when he asks you to do it and with the right heart attitude. In other words, God's love language is obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus' question by way of application here was simply, if you profess to follow me, are you serving me now, in this moment, in my vineyard, and not just your own? I've got to make a confession to you. I've been, I've been doing this gig for over 40 years as a pastor, trying to discern what the Bible says. And when I first came to my study of the Scriptures, I, I had this dichotomy of thought, this bifurcation of thought about salvation and discipleship. I thought they were two different things. I thought the discipleship was important, but it was kind of, kind of optional. I mean, you could serve the Lord or not and still be okay as far as gaining heaven. Shocking revelation. I've since learned that is not the case. I hope that awakens some of you. You cannot divide the two. Discipleship is synonymous with salvation. Salvation assumes discipleship. Discipleship assumes salvation. Exhibit A in the courtroom of your mind is the Great Commission from Jesus in Matthew 28. He said, in your going, make disciples. There's the one command, make disciples. He doesn't mention make converts because it's implied. When you make a disciple, you make a convert. But you don't leave it there at making a convert. You go on. You go on. Two participial phrases, present tense. If you make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Greek word, immersing. I, I'm just curious when it comes to obedience. You profess to know Jesus. Have you been baptized by immersion as the Bible commands? And then he goes on, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Everything, the whole counsel of God, the whole book. That's why we're expositional here at Cedarville Church, because we give you the, the whole thing, the whole Bible. 
It's all inspired by God. He promises if we do that, he'll be with us even to the end of the age. When we accept Jesus as Savior, we also accept him as Lord. And if we come to Christ, we automatically go to work in his vineyard. And if we don't go to work in his vineyard, no matter how much we profess to the contrary, it reveals we really do not know him. That's what the Bible teaches. Whoa. Today's message is is penetrating. It's meant to find you out where you are. Let me just have you do one exercise. Uh, Let's let's just listen to you for a few moments in your talk uh, during the course of the week. When you're away from this place of God talk and church world and you're among your friends, you know, your neighbors, your your classmates, maybe folks at work, let, let me listen in on your conversation, what you say. Excuse me? I beg your jargon? Jesus said, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Your words out you, if you're a true follower of Christ. This is the scandal of American evangelicalism of cultural Christianity. In many quarters, professed faith is absent fruit, meaning it's not genuine faith at all. So I beg you, be honest with yourself. And in doing right, do it now. A second insight, in asking a God question, the answers are in the questions. The goal is realization. We talked earlier about reflection. Thinking, now, realization, where the light comes on. And I, I can't make the light come on. That's why I prayed for the Spirit to work. We've got to let the Spirit work. We, we cannot coerce or manufacture conviction or change. As John MacArthur says, let the Word do its work. If people don't think the sword of the Spirit is sharp, just stick them with it. Ask them God questions from Scripture. Hey, friends, The Bible is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing sun of soul and spirits of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When the Word of God is preached in the power of the Spirit, it will find you out. And conviction will come to your soul. And then the question is, will you be responsible in repenting? My goal today, honestly, is not to play Holy Spirit My goal is to ask you God questions and allow the Spirit to confirm where you stand with God. And if you answer those questions honestly, God will reveal to you where you stand today. Now let me me pose a question for you that Jesus posed to his followers. Here it is from Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, but... Do not what I tell you. To phrase it slightly differently, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And in that same context of Matthew 7, he illustrates, he says, A good tree brings forth good fruit, and a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. He says, If you go into the vineyard, and you only ever find 
thorns, is it really? Is it really a grapevine? Or maybe even a deeper question, is it really even alive? Because Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them, Matthew 7, verse 20. Your, your life, if you are abiding in the vine, is going to produce the fruit of the vine. And that fruit is detailed in Scripture for us. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, and a lot of other things. What is the fruit of your life? Be, be honest with yourself, and in doing right, do it now. On to a third insight. In listening to another's retort to a God question, look for the question behind their question. Sounds like a tongue twister. Let me try to humorously illustrate this. Let's suppose after the service, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what you doing for lunch today? What's the question behind the lunch? Behind, behind the question. They're saying, would you like to go to lunch, right? Would you like to go to lunch with me? Now, let's suppose you agree, and uh, you, you go out to eat at your favorite restaurant, you sit down, and your server brings you the menus, and you look at them, and you each order your respective meal, and then the food is delivered, and it's sat down in front of your friend and in front of you, and you happen to notice the body language of your friend who invited you to eat, and they look very longingly and lustfully at your plate of food. And then here comes the question, what did you order? <laughs> it looks really good. Well, what are they asking? Well, if they're a family member, they're probably saying, could I have a bite of that? If they're not a family member, they're probably at least talking to themselves, and they're probably saying something like this, well, why didn't I think to order that meal? That looks really good. Okay, so, so here's my point. Look for the question behind the question. The goal here is repentance. We've talked about reflection, realization, now repentance. This is the crux of my message, and I need you to pray for me and pray for yourself and everybody here. Pray for life change. I, for those who don't know me, I'm the counseling pastor here at the church, and when people come, and many of you have come to me for counseling, and I'm grateful. I love to help people. In my intake session, I say, I've got, I've got to have you sign off on four things for me to counsel you. Number one, you have to have a teachable spirit. Number two, you've got to give me some time. Number three, you've got to be willing to do the homework. And number four, you have to be willing to change. You'd be surprised how many people balk at that last one. Not immediately, but eventually in the counseling. Because change is hard. You have to die to self. Change is the essence of repentance. The last line of Matthew 21, 32 defines repentance beautifully. Though the Jews were abstinent, and even when you saw it, Jesus said, you did not afterward change. He's talking repentance. Change your minds and believe him. Repentance is a compound word. In the Greek, metanoia, meta meaning after. Noia, the root word, noose, mind. So repentance means that after considering the God questions, you change your mind and you change your ways. 
If you're taking notes, just write down that last line. You change your mind and you change your ways. You're doing a 180 on the roadway of life. You're going this way and whoop. God intersects and interrupts you and you turn around and you go the opposite way. That is repentance. Now let me circle back to the question on the freeway in Houston. Whatever happened to personal responsibility? Let me just think out loud with you for a moment about answering that question. You know, it's really easy for us, like the the religious crowd in this parable, to point the finger at other guys and to kind of condemn them. Let me use an illustration. Maybe you can relate. I'll confess to you that I watch Fox News. Do I have a witness? Anybody else out there watch Fox? <laughs> and I, I can, if I watch it, I can kind of get steamed. I can start talking to the television. Uh, if, I, if I don't talk to the TV, at least I'm thinking some things in my mind's eye. And let me invite you to sit right along with me. And if you're where I am, I'm likely thinking you're probably saying the same sort of questions that I'm asking. Here's the questions that I'm thinking. Why don't those people change? Or when will those government crooks be brought to justice? Can you relate? Now, those are good questions, and they're incident enough. But you know what? They lack personal responsibility. They don't really change anything of consequence in our lives. The, 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 the questions behind the questions are the questions we must ask ourselves. The only person that God right now wants you to think about is you in this moment. Forget the person next to you. God's talking to you. And you need to ask the question, how do I need to change? What needs to happen for my walk to match my talk? When will I tire of playing church game and actually address what's going down and happening in my own life? Two questions that I ask in my recently printed book, 30 Days of Gospel Living. In my chapter on the gospel and revival, I think are good to interject here, and here's the two questions. Try them on for size. When's the last time your personal repentance led you to a weeping confession of the lack of God reality in your life? I don't want to play the hypocrite. God's been dealing with me. I, I wept over my own sins of selfishness this week. I wept. And increasingly, in recent months, I've been weeping before the Lord when he shows me the kind of person I am when I don't walk in the spirit and I walk in the flesh. I weep. You know, David, who in Scripture is called a man after God's own heart, you know what he claimed in, in Psalm 56? He said, God keeps my tears in a bottle. And they're not just referring to his sorrows. They're also referring to his repentance over sin in context. David wept over his sin. In the New Testament, Peter, who denied the Lord three times, he wept over his sin. Can I ask you, I really honestly want you to answer this. When's the last time you wept over your sin? If you can't remember, you need revival. Your heart's grown cold and hard and insensitive. 
And you realize what you've done against the holy God of heaven who crucified his only begotten son for you. How can you sin with impunity and blow it off as if it's nothing? Ah, sobering things to consider. A second question from my book I want you to think about. If the only thing from the Bible that you could teach, preach, or share included what is evident in your own life, how much could you say? Question sometimes asked this way. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Be honest with yourself. And in doing right, do it now. You may already be familiar with the serenity prayer. It's a good prayer. Here it is. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Good words. But I'm going to allow author John Miller to turn that just a little bit in light of our parable today. Consider how he renders it. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know, finish it for me. It's me. It's me. I've done a lot of praying early this morning, this week. I, I know God's working. I wish you could have been here for service one and two to see the move of the Spirit in the multitudes of people who flooded the front today to indicate that God was stirring in their lives. I know he's moving today, and I know he's moving in your heart, and I know right now he's putting his finger into your soul, and he's pointing out exactly that area where you need to change, and you know what it is. You know what it is. Well, the wind of the Spirit is finding you out in the trees of your life, and maybe he's revealing to you, I, I don't really know Jesus. Yeah, oh yeah, I've prayed a prayer. I, I've gone through the motions. But you've never been genuinely converted. You've never truly repented and trusted Christ, leading to life change because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and behold, the new has come. There will be fruit in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, Soil types one, two, and three, indicative of no life. In soil type number four, yeah, good soil, where the seed germinated and produced fruit. There was 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, differing amounts, but there was something indicative of genuine life. There will always be fruit when there's genuine life. Now, I get it. Conversion's not a matter of perfection, but rather of direction, I ask you, is your heart bent toward God? Is there any evidence of fruit in your life? I know most of you are believers. I, I understand that. But I'm convinced many of you are under conviction right now, just as people were trembling in the earlier services, saying, God is dealing with me. I know there's stuff wrong, and I've been pushing him away. You know it needs change, and it needs change today. Don't push him away any longer. I don't need to know what's going on, but God wants you to out yourself. I'm convinced that repentance always precedes confession. Repentance, a change of mind, leads to confession where you openly acknowledge your sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we 
confess our sin. Greek word homo legao. I say the same thing. I agree with God. This is wrong. I must turn from this. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And James 5.16 goes just a step further, and he says, if you really want to overcome this life-dominating sin, you got to get it out in the open. you got to go public. you got to ask somebody else to help you. You can't hold us in in the dark. It's going to turn into mold spiritually. you got to out yourself. Confess your faults to one another, and then you will be healed. God has never promised to forgive a sin we're unwilling to forsake. In order to forsake it, we've got to out ourselves. Hence, I'm giving a public invitation today. I'm going to ask you to come and publicly demonstrate your repentance by standing here silent and to say, yes, God has broken through to me, and I want to acknowledge that today. Now, I understand, I get this, that God does not ask if our repentance is complete because it's never complete in this life. The question is not, is it complete? The question is, has it begun? Are you right now in a spirit and attitude of repentance? I've counseled many in this church, and thank God that numbers of you have indicated a desire to repent and have started to turn around, I'm gonna ask you to indicate that publicly by coming forward today. I've made the decision, I'm gonna to continue to follow in that. Some of you were perhaps on the men's wilderness trip or you teenagers, you students, you, you, were, you were on uh, the trip up to Lake Ann Camp and you heard Pastor Rudolph's message on Friday night and together with scores of others, you flooded the auditorium as he challenged you to be a Jonathan or an armor bearer with Jonathan and you came forward with all those kids and maybe even spoke at the Glory Bowl. I'm gonna ask you to stand up in front of your home crowd and continue that repentance today and not let it die off when you leave camp. And then for those of you who are here today and God is stirring you about an area of your life, you know what it is. I don't need to know, but God wants you to openly confess it and get it right and move in the right direction. I'm going to ask you to stand here as well and say, here's my life, Lord. I'm sick of living this way, pushing you away. I'm repenting. I'm beginning the repentance today. Please, I beg you one more time. Be honest with yourself. And in doing right, do it now. Would you pray with me? In a moment, I'm going to ask you, as I've already suggested, after I pray and while we sing, I'm going to ask you to come to the front immediately without hesitation, taking a public stand silently to say, I'm following Christ. Maybe you've never been saved. Your life certainly doesn't demonstrate it. You need to embrace the true gospel that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again. You turn from yourself, your sin. You turn from living life the way you want to. And he becomes not only resident, but he becomes president of your life. Others of you, sin has dominated, and you're saying, I, I gotta turn this around. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna start today. I'm gonna urge you to come. Say yes to Jesus as Savior. Say yes to Jesus as Lord. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you will draw people. You will shake us from the very 
depths of our being to ask ourselves God questions to find out, are we really in the family of God or are we only fig fooling ourselves? God, the, the altar is the cross of Christ and you with open arms invite us to come and turn to Jesus. I pray that many will do that in this service just as they have in the two previous. Do it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.